Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the car carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. The Lord Jesus has been speaking on the subject of the last days. Remember, it comes in response to at least two, perhaps three questions. When will the temple be destroyed? What is the sign of your return? When will the world end? Right from the start, Jesus repeatedly warns against deception. Verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will deceive many. Verse 11, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Jesus then, remember, gives a series of nine signs in brief order. Verse 5, false messiahs. Verse 2, global violence. And ver or excuse me, number 2. Verse 6, global violence. Verse 7, natural disasters. Verse 9, severe religious persecutions. Verse 10, apostasy, betrayal, division. Verse 11, ever-increasing false leaders offering a false hope, giving a false message. Verse 12, a great falling away, increase in sin, decrease in love in verse 12, endurance by some in verse 13, global evangelism in verse 14. And you'll remember we learned last week, then there is this historical, if you will, sign that must happen, a tenth sign, a terrible sign, an abomination which makes desolate, spoken by Daniel the prophet. In three sections in Daniel, we discovered that there's going to be a future ruler who's going to make a covenant with the enemies of the Jews for a season of peace. That peace will be shattered in the future when a future Jewish temple is built and a future world leader will go into that temple proclaiming himself to be God. He will cause the sacrifices to cease in verses 15 through 20. There's a time of unprecedented tribulation that comes upon the whole earth according to verse 20. This tribulation will threaten human existence. It says it will be shortened for the elect's sake in verse 21. A promise is given. So who are the elect? I believe for the most part, these are Jews who have embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, who participate in a global revival during this great time of trial. 
Not all my friends agree. Some suggest that these are true Christians, both Jew and Gentile, who experience a supernatural deliverance in the middle of the tribulation. Others believe it is a picture of all true believers who go through the tribulation, which is ended for the sake of the saved at the end of the tribulation. And I would refer you to Revelation chapter 19. The tribulation will generate a frantic search for a human deliverer to cope with the global disaster and destructions that come upon the earth in verses 23 and 24. Once again, Jesus warns strongly about deceivers and deception in verses 25 and 26. Then there is the promise of his return in verses 27 and 28. The rest of the chapter is going to focus on this time and the coming of Jesus, which we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. But again, look at the frantic search for a deliverer in verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, listen carefully, do not believe it. And then Jesus warns, for false Christs, false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. Jesus describes distress in the world, crisis, calamity, confusion, corruption. The prophet Daniel calls the tribulation the 70th week. Remember in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. The overspreading of abominations, chapter 9, Daniel 9, 27. The time of trouble such as never was, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord, remember, gave a brief description of the trials in verses 5 through 12. The book of Revelation gives a much more detailed description of these trials and catastrophes in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. And I would refer you to the Bible studies that I've done in Revelation chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 that are available in the media room. There we read about seals and trumpets and bowls that describe partial judgments. And then ever-increasing severe judgments. And then a preparation, if you will, for a final judgment. In the seal judgments, we read about a white horse, a black horse, a pale horse, saints under the altar, an earthquake of global proportions. These subjects bring in conquest, blood, Famine, death, martyrs, the trumpet judgments are intense and destructive. And as much as I'd like to talk more about it, I want to just remind you of something that's said in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, where it says, after all of these repeated judgments, there's still no repentance. And that gives us a clue into the question that we asked when we prayed. 
It wasn't just simply that a tribulation must come or that Jesus must come. It's to ask and answer the question, why is all of this happening? In the opening chapter of Romans chapter 1, it speaks of a world in rebellion, disobedience, convinced that they can live their life apart from the gospel, apart from Christ, apart from salvation. But in spite of all of these things, there's still no repentance. The first four of the six judgments involve fire. The seventh trumpet doesn't sound until Revelation 11:15 in an anticipation of the bold judgments in brief. The trumpet judgments bring a hailstorm of fire where one-third of the earth is destroyed. This is followed by volcanic eruptions that destroy one-third of the sea life on the planet earth. A celestial object is pictured that comes from heaven to the earth, drops to the earth, polluting one-third of the waters of the earth. Then the Bible describes demonic-like locusts and plagues, a demonic army angry nations who destroy the earth and then an evil political leader and a false religious leader in chapters 8 through 13. No wonder, no wonder after all of this, when you think about this disaster, there is this frantic search for a deliverer. In microcosm, if you've been watching the floods that have been taking place in South Texas, you see people wading in water up to their shoulders as they wash their world, wash away. We sympathize and are sensitive towards people who lose everything. But remember, there's no Repentance. The judgments don't provoke repentance, but rather an obstinate refusal to believe God, trust Jesus, believe the gospel. Jesus says at least three things about this frantic search for an earthly Messiah. Number one, with the presence of unspeakable disaster, with the presence of unspeakable judgment, death by war, by plague, by hunger, by global disaster, possible nuclear holocausts, they cry out for a deliverer. But it's not God's deliverer. It's not Jesus. It's not the Lord. They want someone to take power, to assume leadership, to bring an end to their suffering. In microcosm, you see this all around you. As people struggle and suffer and face difficulty, whether it's a diagnosis of cancer or, or whether it's a financial setback or no matter what it is and, and all of a sudden a series of circumstances begin to take place in your life and you cry out for help, you cry out for a deliverer, you want someone to help you out. But so often it isn't the God of the Bible and it isn't the Savior in the Bible. You want the pain and the problems and the difficulties to go away in your marriage, in your circumstances. But you won't find solutions that are found in the scripture. And number two, these false messiahs, these false deliverers, 
in spite of all of these judgments, will show great signs and wonders. And it would appear that at the end of days, at the end of time, there's going to be this ever-increasing display of signs and wonders, the implication being that these are the supernatural workings that seem to authenticate the message that they're giving. And a hint is given to us in Revelation chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, we see this beast coming out of the earth. He has two horns, like a lamb. He speaks like a dragon, it says in verse 1. He exercises authority over another beast mentioned earlier, who experiences what looks like a fatal wound and, and a miraculous recovery. Quote, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, it says in verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. The, the implication is that some sort of gigantic statue or object or mechanical structure or something is built that seems to represent this person and that this object becomes the object of worship. And number three, these false deliverers will be persuasive. There will be people who will watch and they'll say, how can we resist their Wisdom. How can we resist their power? How can we resist them? It would appear that some false leaders with a false message can sometimes accomplish persuasive signs and wonders. They're designed to convince people that their claims are true. But we have to ask, what is the source of their power? It could be human ingenuity. It might be trickery. I was watching, of all things, and I probably should know, there's this guy called Chris Angel, mind freak, where he does the most amazing things, and it blows people's mind. And some people think he uses supernatural powers, but it is trickery, and people are able to do astonishing things. Is there power human ingenuity? Is it trickery? Is it demonic or satanic empowerment? Fallen angels are, after all, angels who are given great power. Paul knew about this danger in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, where he says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon. From him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. In context, he's speaking of a group of people who are offering a way out, 
of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It's an invitation by Judaizers and legalists to invite you to believe a gospel that says you can participate and work your way through heaven. And nothing is further from the truth. Paul notes in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which we have received, let him be accursed. In the 7th century, Muhammad received a vision from the archangel, allegedly Gabriel, that God has no son and that Jesus is not the Lord. An angel from heaven allegedly came to Joseph Smith in 1830 and said, guess what? Christianity is apostate and fallen away and we have come to restore the true gospel. An angel from heaven has deceived over 1.3 billion Muslims and an additional multiple millions of Mormons. It would appear that the elect in this passage are those who genuinely know and believe in the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior. But these people are upset. They are troubled, even shaken by the power of these deceivers. It would appear that most followers of false teachers and leaders claim some kind of connection to the historical Christian faith. John Flavel wrote, quote, by entertaining of strange persons, men sometimes entertain angels unawares, but by entertaining strange doctrines, many have entertained devils unaware. They look. They see. They want answers. One Bible teacher describes those times yet to come. He writes, quote, Satan will vigorously try to use the turmoil of the times to undermine the confidence of the refugees and to persuade them to follow a false Messiah who immediately betray them to the Antichrist once they are outside of God's sanctuary with the world falling apart, with the stars falling from the sky, with disease, starvation, and thousands of their countrymen having been mercilessly slaughtered. The refugees will be emotionally drained, utterly vulnerable to the subterfuge of false Christ and prophets were it not for God's provision. When are you at risk? It's when you're hurt. It's when you're terrified. It's when you're full of fear. And you wonder whether or not the Bible is true and the message of the gospel can be trusted. And so Jesus, look what he says, guard against deceivers and deception in verses 25 and 26. Look what Jesus says, see, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Note a couple of things. 
Jesus gives advance warning. This is the very heart of predictive prophecy. This means you've been warned in advance what to look for. Jesus says, I told you before. Listen bluntly. Don't listen to their lies. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't listen to their lies. In tough times, even the most dedicated, even the most consecrated believer can be shaken. Something happens. It seems so random or unfair. And so sometimes people will grasp for any hope as rumors run wild. Just like in today when you have a diagnosis or a disease or a problem or a difficulty and you are willing to try anything to make the pain go away. These liars and deceivers say that the hope for humanity lies in the desert. This is an idiomatic expression which means some remote place on the planet earth that we haven't yet looked at. Or the deliverer will come from a secret chamber. This is also translated the inner rooms. Here the suggestion is that the the deliverer comes from some secret place, from some unseen place, from some quiet place. In the 1980s when I was working for the Department of Social Services at the beginning of the 80s, there was a headline that, that read, the Lord Maitreya is about to reveal himself. It says that he has been in a secret compound somewhere in the far east and he's getting ready to make himself known that he is a mighty deliverer and he's going to bring the planet earth into a noble participation with God. Of course, it sort of fizzled up, never happened. But this is what he's basically saying. The word translated inner room or secret chamber is tamion, which in the ancient world meant a storeroom, but it was a a particular kind of a storeroom. If you can imagine in our culture and society, the place where we put our valuables is the most secure place. Some of you may have um, a secret place or a vault or a safe. And you put it in that safe place. And so here, that's the idea that it comes from some safe and secure storeroom. But in three other places in the New Testament, it's translated inner room. In Matthew 6, verse 6. In this passage, in Luke chapter 12, verse 3. It's the idea of the place where you keep that which is valuable for security's sake. And so the False teachers are going to say, hidden away is a person or a solution who's going to be the answer to our deep, deepest problems. Jesus says, don't you believe it? This should prompt a different question from each and every one of you. You should say to yourself or the person sitting next to you, why are so many 
people willing to believe false teachers and false doctrine? What is it about them and what they're saying that makes it so enticing and so believable? And I think you know the answer, that in pain and suffering and difficulty, they're offering a way out for the pain to go away, for the confusion to go away. So what are we to do? In part, we still have to be prepared. Remember, Satan and his angels oppose God's plan. On Wednesdays, we're studying through the book of Ephesians, and we're fast going to come to chapter 6, where we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. Satan and his minions oppose God's plan. They traffic in false doctrine, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, and 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Fallen angels have been known to cause insanity, infirmity in Mark chapter 5 verse 15 and Matthew 10 1. Angels, demonic beings can cause blindness both physical and spiritual Matthew 12 2. They can inflict grievous torture and we know that this is exactly what they'll do on the unsaved during the great tribulation and you can read about it in Revelation chapter 9 verses 3 and 4 but I'm going to suggest to you that demonic spirits have the ability to inflict grievous torture even now on the unbeliever on the make believer the Bible says, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. You've been set aside by Christ. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But you're also a target. Satan targets the human mind and the human body and the human will. Satan also targets the heart and the conscience and his weapons of choice have been since the beginning lies, suffering, pride, and endless accusations. Satan's purposes are to make you ignorant of God's will, impatient with God's will, to act independently of God's will, or to be charged or indicted by God's will. No wonder when people are in trouble and you say, I need you to pray. I need you to open up your Bible. And you open up your Bible and it pleads with you to repent, to turn from your sin, to embrace God's solution to your problem. Having said all of this, it should become abundantly clear to you that the best weapon in your defense is the inspired word of God, which reveals the will of God. I want to know what God wants for me. Then you need to open up your Bible. It's the inspired word of God, and then it's the imparted grace of God. It's the indwelling spirit of God. It's the interceding son of God in heaven as Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, pleads your case. And so, we discover something. This is why we devote so much of our ministry to the teaching and the preaching of God's word. 
This is why on Mondays we have men's Bible study and we have women's Bible study and we have youth groups and we have discipleship groups. Your safety can't be restricted to Sunday morning. Don't get me wrong, I want you here. I hope it's time well spent. I can only plead with you. This is why we focus and emphasize God's grace. This is why we talk about the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Why do you think we point you to Jesus? Why do you think we point you to Jesus in prayer and in intercession and then offer the reality that there is a God in heaven and there's a Christ in heaven who intercedes on your behalf and who cares for you? Why do you think what we say that the fervent, effectual prayers of righteous people make a difference as we invite you to call in so that you can put your loved one on the prayer list, so that we can pray when you're suffering and you're afflicted? Make no mistake about it, everyone, and I do mean everyone without exception, lives by faith. It's just simply not in the faith in God and and the faith in Christ. But make no mistake about it, your unsaved family member, your unsaved friend, that person that you care about, that person that you're thinking about, they have faith in something. It's their reason, or it's their own resources, or it's their world around them, or it's some false doctrine, or it's some sense of satisfaction that they have in what they think they're doing. The Christian trusts Christ and Christ's word, and the non-Christian trusts something else. You know what both of them have in common? It's faith. And your faith is well-placed. Or it's not well-placed. What's your greatest defense against deception? It's the word of God. It's the grace of God. It's the spirit of God. It's the son of God. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, I'll never, no never, Stop teaching you the Bible. I will never, ever be satisfied with human opinions or even TED Talks that are inspiring and inspirational. With every ounce in my body, I have to both pray and think, no, Gino, don't entertain them. And then I can't help it. I want to tell you a funny story. Or I want to offer a joke. I reserve the right to do so from time to time. But there's something that isn't a joke. It's the crushing emptiness that fills people's hearts and minds as they're looking for solutions to their problems. In the last chapter of Ephesians, we're going to be talking about 
the enemy we fight and the equipment we wear and the energy needed to fight that fight. Armor and weapons, though, are not sufficient to win the spiritual battle. You're going to need energy to do the job. The kind of energy that only comes from a commitment to pray to the Lord. The word of God and prayer are two powerful weapons given to the church to overcome the enemy and then regain ground for God's glory. This is what we need. So Jesus gives this strong warning. Watch out for deceivers. Watch out for deception. But God's secret for overcoming this world, according to Mark chapter 13, verse 33, isn't simply to watch. It's to watch and pray. It's to look up and then pray. Because our hope is not coming from within or next to us. Our hope is coming from heaven. And that's what Jesus will say, beginning in verse 27, the guarantee of Christ's return in verses 27 and 28. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagle will be gathered together. Note something. The Lord Jesus has several things to say about his return. Right from the start, remember, he's not coming from some desert place, from some wilderness in verse 26. He's not coming from some remote place on the planet. Don't believe it. Jesus isn't coming from some secret chamber, some unseen secret that's available to only the initiated who join our cult or who join our group. Jesus says, don't you believe it. Here, Jesus describes the coming of the Son of Man, which is, by the way, his favorite term for himself. Over and over again, Jesus is called the Son of Man, and he's called the Son of David. His favorite expression for himself is the Son of Man, because it's the title of choice as he identifies with you. Jesus is saying, I'm a human being, like you're a human being. I've come from heaven. Yes, that's true, but he doesn't Focus so much on the sense that he is the son of God, which he is in fact and in reality. But this is his expression as he identifies with you. He basically says, like lightning that flashes from the east to the west, it's visible. It's in the horizon. It's in the sky. It is sudden. It is surprising. It is visible to all. The apostle John in the book of Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. John writes, even so, amen. That means let it happen So be it. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus bids farewell to his disciples in verse 8. He's taken up in a cloud. He's received into heaven in verse 9. And in verse 10 of Acts chapter 1, it says, And while they looked steadfastly up, a cloud received them out of their sight. Men stood by them in white apparel, verse 11, who also said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus was, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go to heaven. The return of Jesus is visible, corporeal. That means his body. He himself will descend from heaven, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. So anyone who tells you it's invisible, it's secret, it's only to the initiated, they're lying, lying, lying to you. You need to be able to say with a smile, you're lying. You're not being exactly honest. The coming of Jesus is mentioned 318 times in 216 chapters of the Bible. Whole books are devoted to the theme. All of 1 Thessalonians, all of 2 Thessalonians, all of chapter 24 of Matthew, all of Mark 13, all of Luke 21, all of John chapter 21. Are you getting the hint that he's coming back? Jesus promises his return in John 14 verses 1 through 3. I will come again and receive you to myself. The angels bear witness in Acts chapter 1. The apostles bear witness in Acts chapter 3 verse 19. We're invited to see Christ's coming according to Paul as our hope. And this should provide an answer to you. The question I begged you to ask yourself, not simply theologically that Jesus is coming back, but why is he coming back? Clearly, we could say because he said so, and that would be enough. But the Bible says, I'm going to offer you something else besides just simply his promise. I want it to generate hope in your heart. It says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a promise that offers us incentive. But there's something more than this life. There's something more than just the simple experiences, good or bad. It's offering an incentive so that you will live your life in hope. That it will motivate you for pure living. We're going to find that out later in Matthew chapter 24, verses 44, where it says, Therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour which you expect not. We're going to talk more about that. But think about the hope that's being offered and the incentive for pure living. Credit cards will offer you incentives to go deeper into debt. So that you can buy more stuff. The Bible's trying to incentivize you. So that you can have a heart full of hope. A willingness to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to God. The second coming can't be limited to, well, you know what? When he shows up, we're dead. No. That's not what the Bible's teaching. The Bible says the dead in Christ rise first. 
which is probably good evidence that Baptists will go to heaven before we do. No, that's not what the meaning of the text is. Don't you interpret it that way. That's not what it's saying. It's not, it's not talking about that. I'm just making a joke. If you're a Baptist, don't be too offended. Some people suggest that the second coming took place at the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. But the events described here by Jesus and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul did not write after the destruction of the temple, but Jesus in but John in John chapter 21, verse 21, and the whole book of Revelation are written after the destruction of the temple. According to John, he didn't come back. We have not yet talked about how the second coming of Jesus is different from the rapture. In the rapture, Jesus comes for the saints in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. In the second coming, he comes with the saints in 1 Thessalonians 3, 13, Jude 14, and Revelation 19, 14. In the rapture, Jesus comes in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, removes believers, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, is seen only by his own in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. The saved are delivered from God's judgment, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. No signs precede the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1, 3. The rapture results in worldwide deception, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Satan then gets unprecedented access to the world. So we as Christians are given a very special permission. It isn't to look for the coming of an antichrist. It's to look for the coming of Jesus Christ. And that simple statement should be the difference between Fear and joy and hope. We're going to be contrasting the second coming and the return in the weeks ahead. But again, why is there a second coming? Because Jesus is going to raise the righteous dead. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, even if he were dead, he's going to come back to life. We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We will remain with him forever. Believers are going to be rewarded for their faithfulness to Jesus. The nations and the individuals are going to be judged. Long ago, Bible scholars speculated that the Jews would be restored to their own land in an unconverted state by and large. If you read the literature of Bible teachers from the 1880s, the 1890s, 1910, 1920, there was this repeated suggestion. The Jews are going to go back. There's going to be a restored Israel. It will happen. And what does verse 28 mean? Look, look at that strange statement. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. You probably read that and go, what in the world is that? Well, just like in the old Western movies, which I love, when you're going through the desert and you're riding down the trail, when you see the vultures circling, what comes to your mind? There's a dead body close by. This is an idiomatic expression again. In our culture and society, we have an idiomatic expression. Only the best tuna gets to be star-kissed. We have crazy little sayings. This is one of those 
crazy little sayings. The illustration is of a dead and a rotting body. Here, the eagles aren't eagles like you and I understand them. They're carrion. They're vultures. In the early church, some believed that this was a picture of Titus and Vespasian because the Roman armies had eagles on their standards. And I'm not going to suggest to you that the corpse was the rotting corpse of Judaism, but rather it's the rotting corpse of humanity that's destined to die as hard and as vivid as this image is. It's an image that Jesus invites us to entertain that a world gone crazy in rejection and rebellion against God is like a rotting, stinking corpse. In this instance, the eagles or the vultures are the judgment that will feed upon those who are being judged. In broadest terms, it's the fact that Jesus will come to execute a final judgment, a universal judgment when the time is ripe. At just the right time. From time to time, even now, we smell the culture and it smells like death. I don't know if you've ever had the unpleasant experience of coming upon a body that started to decompose. The odor is unmistakable. In the desert, when the vultures surround the rotting carcass, you understand that they are soon going to be dining. And there's a vivid picture given to us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 17 and 18, where it says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come! Gather together for the supper of the great God for that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Judgment will take place on a corrupt world. The good news, grace precedes judgment. Today, today is a time of grace. Today is a time of mercy. Today is a day when you can turn from your sin and you can trust the Savior. The Bible says that there's going to be two future harvests. Lost souls are ripe for spiritual harvest. There are people that God has set aside for salvation. But there are some who have set themselves aside for judgment. The Bible is full of contrasts between life and death, light and darkness, the real and the unreal. Unreal. 
the true and the false. And so Jesus provides a powerful warning. Not everyone who says they speak for God are really speaking for God. Jesus warns us, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, be on guard. It's easy to be led astray. Our best defense against deception remains the inspired word of God, the imparted grace of God, the indwelling spirit of God, the interceding son of God. Yes, Jesus is in heaven at this very moment praying, Lord, help her. Keep her head on straight. Help him to not be distracted. Help her to not be confused or deceived by people telling them that things that simply aren't true. There's a God. He loves you. There's a Savior who died for you. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you. And he promised and sent a Holy Spirit who would come to you and live inside of you and help you through the most difficult times that you have faced, are facing, and might face in the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we could take these warnings seriously. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be content to just simply say, oh, I know a little bit more. Oh, that was interesting. Oh, there's some things I need to do to prepare for a moment that will come Jesus will return. Jesus will come in grace and redemption and deliverance or in judgment. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be a part of that great group of people whose hearts are stirred whose affections are secure, that we with the saints in every generation could say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.